Good evening. Uh, Let me pray as we come to think about that passage from Ephesians. Father, we ask that you would be with us this evening and that you would speak to us and that you would help us to hear this passage in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Well, we're coming to the end of our series looking at the letter of Ephesians. Um. I've been really enriched by it, actually, and I hope you have too. This second last section of the letter, though, may make some of us, many of us here, feel a little bit awkward when it speaks about things like wives submitting to husbands and slaves and masters. It can feel like a kind of unwelcome hangover from a culture we've moved on from. Now, part of this awkwardness is quite reasonable. Uh, There definitely are issues surrounding the original cultural situation, particularly to do with slavery, and we need to be aware of them, and I'll get to them. And I don't want to pretend away some of the real and important difficulties we might have with these ideas. But we need to notice also that part of our awkwardness stems simply from the fact that the vision of marriage and family set out in this passage, and in fact in the Bible as a whole, really jars with the cultural stories we are being told at the moment, uh, about marriage. Um, What this passage says about husbands, jars, with the image of the bumbling, incompetent, disengaged husband that bombards us everywhere. Uh, My wife and I saw an ad last night on TV uh, where the husband had done something wrong uh, and so had been put in the dog kennel. Seriously. He 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 was like a dog. You know, a bad dog. And, and this kind of idea is actually everywhere. It's on every ad about, you know, detergent or whatever. And we've taken it, we've taken it on more than we think we have. And so we find it very hard, I think, to work out how to deal with what this passage seems to be saying about the role of husbands in marriages and families. What this passage says also jars with the story we're being told at the moment in relation to same-sex marriage. Uh, This passage assumes that marriage is actually a unique gift of God, uh, something, as Paul puts it, that is a profound mystery. It's in verse 32. And it's made possible by the unity through complementarity of a man and a woman. By contrast, we're being encouraged to believe that far from the complementarity the difference of man and woman making marriage what it is, it is actually irrelevant and that there is no reason to not call a relationship between two men or two women a marriage. Now, this is why it's important for all of us to engage with the things we read here. Because not all of us, of course, find ourselves in the relationships this passage talks about. In fact, not many of us here are married and even fewer of us are parents. Some of us will be in the future, but not all of us. And that is quite all right. The Bible explicitly affirms what our culture has a great deal of trouble believing and what Christian churches sadly also often fail to affirm, that what we could call chaste singleness, um, a life, life as a sexually celibate single person, is a, that is a perfectly legitimate and in some ways actually preferable, though in other ways very difficult, way of life for a Christian man or a woman. 
But that doesn't make, the fact that we're not all in these situations doesn't make this passage irrelevant. All of us at least know people in these relationships and probably many of us here will one day be married and so it'd be good to think about these things beforehand. But even if we will never find ourselves in this situation, in these situations, it's still important that we think about them. Because this is a point at which the goodness and intelligibility of what the Bible says is being challenged today. And we need to engage with passages like this in order to know not just how to live, which will affect some of us but not all of us, but in order to appreciate and understand the goodness of the Christian faith and the call of God on people in our world. I believe that there's a real need for us all today to rediscover and renew our appreciation of the goodness of the Bible's teaching in passages like this one. And so I want to invite you to to join with me now in in looking seriously at this text. Um, What I want to do is first to have a go at understanding the passage as a whole And then second, to look particularly at the instructions about marriage. Um, In in advance, I just want to warn you, this is going to be a bit dense because I think the nature of the topic demands it. Um, And also, we won't cover everything. So sorry if there's a disappointment. You're waiting for me to say something and I don't. Okay. Well, let's begin by thinking about the passage as a whole. The first thing we need to understand is that this passage actually had an original social setting. Uh, In the Roman world of the first century, society was largely comprised of households. Um, These households were centred on a family unit, but they were much bigger than that unit normally. They included slaves and often freed men and other family members. And the household wasn't just a private, personal reality. It was a public reality. It was the main economic unit, and most work and productivity took place within a household. Why does this matter? Well, it has two implications. First, it's just interesting to notice that the instructions to husbands, fathers and masters often were to the same person, the head of a household unit. Not always. Slaves could actually also be married and have children and sometimes could have their own slaves. So it was a more complex picture than that. But it does help to realise that these instructions would normally be understood within a social context that was very... Um, it just, there just was male dominance. That's kind of how it worked. Secondly, the social arrangement meant that the stability of the household was a politically hot topic. And because of this, numerous writers in the ancient world addressed issues of how households should function and wrote things quite similar to what Paul writes here. And you see them elsewhere in the New Testament as well, what we now call household codes. And there's other examples from elsewhere. See, what we have here in Ephesians is an engagement with a social form that people knew and understood. It was less weird than it is for us. This passage, though, this household code, is not just a surrender to a bad patriarchal structure. That, I think, too easily dismisses what Paul does here. What we see here, in fact, is a remarkable Christian renovation of that structure. I say this for a few reasons. First, have a look. The passage is linked to what comes before. It'd be really helpful to have the passage open, by the way. Uh, It's Ephesians 5 from verse 21, page 1179, I think. 
The passage is linked to what comes before by verse 21. In fact, it grammatically just follows seamlessly through. And verse 21 is very much a part of what came before. And so this is not an awkward addition to the rest of Ephesians. But it's part of what it looks like, if we think back over the previous chapters, it's part of what it means to walk as light in the world, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Um, These instructions are, therefore, that we get about wives and husbands and so on, they're particular ways in which Christians are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Now, just by the way, I should make it clear that I don't think verse 21 means that each of the things that follow can also be reversed so that husbands also submit to wives and so on. Um, We might like it to be like that, but I just, I don't buy it. I've heard some people interpret it that way, but I think it's mistaken. The force of this passage as a whole is to say that while there is a kind of submission that is appropriate for all Christians, there are also particular ways in which relationships are ordered and submission is appropriate. If you want to ask me about that particular issue later, I'm very happy to talk about it. Second, though, why is this not a surrender just to the social norm, the status quo? Well, there's a number of things in the passage that show that it wasn't just a thoughtless endorsement of what was going on. For one thing, wives, children and slaves are all addressed directly and personally. Paul doesn't go through their husband, father, master. That would have been a normal way of operating. They're taken seriously as moral and spiritual subjects and called to act freely on the basis of their faith. Slaves, for example, are called to obey their masters, not just because they have to, but as a matter of conviction, as an expression of their faith. Um, This is quite remarkable and we shouldn't miss the importance of it. It's a recognition of the equality before God that the Christian gospel affirms. For another thing, the emphasis in this passage is clearly on the obligations given to husbands, fathers and masters. The instructions to husbands to love their wives take up most of the space in that section and they go well beyond anything we know from the first first century. And there's nothing at all there about the husband's rights or entitlements. In fact, the striking thing about the instructions about marriage is that the responsibility for maintaining the order in the relationship is given to wives. Husbands are not instructed to make sure there's rule going on, to, 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 to exercise authority or anything like that. Did you notice that? Now, as we'll see, the way this passage speaks of love does imply a sense of leadership, I think, or at least a sense of responsibility. But for now, we should just notice that in this passage, it is wives who are asked to defend the orderedness of the marriage. Uh, Similarly, the instructions to fathers and masters emphasise, above all, their duties to care for those under them. Um, Masters in verse 9, this is remarkable, have a look at verse 9. Masters are called to treat your slaves in the same way. What's the same way? Well, in the context, it's got to mean something like treating their slaves as Jesus would have them treat them. And it it specifically means avoiding threatening, which they were actually legally entitled to do. Now, this leads to a second key thing 
I really want us to notice, which is that this passage makes a clear distinction between the legitimacy of marriage and parenthood over against slavery. This might seem a stretch at first, as if I'm trying to conjure up what I'd like the passage to say. After all, there are similarities between each of the three things, but there is an important difference. With the instructions to wives and children, the legitimate basis of the order in the relationship is clearly indicated. For wives, it's because, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And for children, it's because, chapter 6, verse 1, this is right. And uh, right here could also be translated just. And it means not just right in the sense that this is the way things are at the moment, but right in the sense of what is naturally just and good. The instructions about both marriage and parenthood, you see, are anchored in the idea that there is an orderedness to these relationships which is legitimate and good. But with the instructions to slaves, it's different. No legitimate basis is given for this relationship. Their masters are rather simply, verse 5, their earthly masters. Any idea of slaves being naturally or justly in that position is conspicuously absent. Um, In fact, everything about the instructions to slaves suggests that this situation, far from being a naturally given order of things, is, like with marriage and parenthood, is just the way things happen to be at the moment. Paul makes it abundantly clear that the slave and the master are in fact equal. Both have the same master in heaven with whom, as verse 9 says, there is no favoritism. And therefore, though it might be the right thing for slaves to obey their masters in that context, there is no suggestion here that slavery in itself is a good thing. Now, that's very like actually how the New Testament as a whole handles the issue of slavery. Slavery was a fact of life in the ancient world that couldn't simply be gotten rid of, like kind of the petrol combustion engine, you know. And yet there are perfectly clear indications in the New Testament that it wasn't regarded as simply a good or natural thing. Paul, for example, lists slave traders among the worst people in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's true that the New Testament does not just call for the eradication of slavery, and that might have challenges for us, but the fact was that was that I think for small communities of Christians, you know, they weren't the power, they weren't the powerful people, the early Christians. To call for the eradication of slavery would have just been meaningless in their context, I think. But even though the New Testament doesn't do that, it is not at all true that the Bible is therefore in favour of slavery. This is one of the great slurs against the Bible, and I actually think we have no reason to buy it for a second. Now, there's a lot more to say about slavery, and in particular, I think this passage can actually help us think about our work relationships. Um, So I want to encourage you to follow up, and one way you might want to do that, in your outlines, there's actually a link to another sermon uh, I've given on slavery, which you can read if you'd like to, uh, and help us think about this, because I'm just aware we're not really going to get into it in the way uh, we can. Don't go to it now on your phone, but maybe for later. The point for now, though, is that this passage assumes a dichotomy, a a distinction 
between the husband-wife and child-parent relationship on the one hand and the slave-master relationship on the other. The first two have a legitimacy and permanency. The third is just the way things happen to be. And what this shows us is that these instructions are not a thoughtless acceptance of a status quo. Rather, they represent a careful Christian engagement with their social situation. And this should be, I think, both an encouragement and a challenge. It's an encouragement because it shows us that the Bible, although it has an original social context, it's not a prisoner of that context. But it's a challenge as well, isn't it? Because it means we can't just dismiss this passage as simply a culturally bound blind spot. We're still called to take what it says seriously. Okay, well, let's turn then to the instructions about marriage. The context in which we read these words is very different to the one in which they were written. What we find controversial today, the idea of headship and the possibility of a legitimate place for something called submission, that is what I think would have been spectacularly uncontroversial in the first century. Now, that's because there were all sorts of ways back then in which husbands were privileged over wives. Men almost always had more education or an education. They were far freer legally in terms of property ownership and financial independence, and they were politically in a whole different position and so on. Now, thankfully, all these things are now very different. So what are we to make of these instructions and how can they still make sense in our context? Well, the way this dense little paragraph, we're looking now at verses 22 to 33. The way this dense little paragraph works is that there's this complex kind of back and forth between the husband-wife relationship on the one hand and the relationship between Christ and the church on the other. Paul sees the marriage relationship as an image of Christ's relationship to the church such that the one can help us understand the other more deeply. Let me try to guide you through the logic of it, guide us through the logic of it. The analogy between Christ and the church and the husband and wife is grounded on the similarity between the husband and wife being called one flesh in Genesis chapter 2. Verse, uh, and which Paul quotes in verse 31, if you look at it there, chapter 5, verse 31. So husband and wife are called one flesh. And Paul sees a similarity between that and the idea that Christ is one body with the church. We've seen all through Ephesians how that idea of the church as Christ's body is quite important. Now, that link between one flesh and one body is actually obscured in our translations a little bit um, because in verse 29, if you look there, when it says, no one ever hated his own body, uh, the word is actually flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh. So Paul's making a link between Christ and the church and the husband and wife's one flesh union. And the idea is that the husband's unity with the wife makes that relationship like Christ's relationship to the church. So, in verse 32, Paul can apply the image of, of, from Genesis chapter 2, the husband and wife being one flesh, he can apply that to the church. See, he says, this is a profound mystery, this one flesh thing. And he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
Now, this analogy finally leads Paul, and this is the kind of crucial point, it leads him to the idea that the husband is the head of the wife because Christ's relationship to the church, his body, is to be its head. See how the analogies interpret each other. What does the idea of headship mean? Well, the metaphor of Christ as the head of the church has come up a number of times in Ephesians. And it suggests a few different things. At one level, it clearly implies some sense of authority. Um, I think that's there and it's, it's not controversial for Paul. But there is something more important in the idea of head than the idea of authority. See, Christ being head of the church means not just that he is its authority, yeah, fair enough, whatever, but also that he gives the church its direction and goal. Um, You get this sense in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We looked at that a little while ago, but if you want to cast your eyes back there, uh, it speaks of the church growing up into the head from whom... um, the whole body builds itself in love. There's this sense of the the head uh, kind of leading and directing the growth of the body and and setting its course. And this idea of the head as what sets the direction, I think makes sense of the way our passage uses the idea. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 23, Paul points to the fact that Christ's headship means that he is the body's saviour. He could have said ruler there. But he says, saviour. So headship is not just about authority. It's about, if I can put it this way, leadership. Now, we'll come back to this point in a moment. This idea, though, that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, it's the basis for the instructions Paul gives to both wives and husbands. To wives, he says that as the church submits to her head, Christ so they must submit to their heads, husbands. And to husbands, he says that as Christ the head loves the church, so they must love their wives as their own bodies, he says in verse 28. Must love as his own body. This comparison, though, with Christ places, and the passage makes a point of this, places a very heavy-duty responsibility on husbands. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And just in case we're not clear on what that means, Paul tells us. He says, verse 23, and gave him, sorry, not verse 23, verse 25, and gave himself up for her. That is to death. Christ's love for the church was so great that he gave himself up to death on the cross for her sake. And that is the model we're given for the husband's love of his wife. Now let's not beat around the bush. This is pretty full on. For those of us who are husbands or who would perhaps like to be, this should be nothing but humbling. If you're coming to this, if you're here this evening and you're coming to this passage kind of feeling like, yeah, go men. Can I just suggest you haven't really gotten hold of what this call to love involves? You haven't really yet felt the weight of the analogy and the burden of being head like Christ is. 
Because when you get that, it's kind of clear that you will never in your wildest dreams live up to this calling. Kind of can only fail to love to the extent that Christ has. But loving loving as Christ loved the church is not just about the extent to which love is supposed to go. This is an important point. It's also about the direction it should go in. Um, I think we sometimes miss this idea, but it's actually what the passage emphasises. In verse 26, if you look there, we get this long statement of purpose, why Christ loved the church. It was in order to, or it's just two in our translation, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. There's a clear sense here, you see, in which Christ's love has a purpose. It heads in a direction. Christ's love, you see, is not just a formless attitude towards the church, a fond feeling for it. It is an active, devoted work to bring the church to a particular goal. And this is why Christ's love is not something different to his headship, as if there were headship on the one hand and love on the other. Christ's love is the form that his headship takes. It is a kind of leadership of the church, because his love is not, is not contentless, but it's purposeful. It takes the church somewhere. This is different to how we often think about love. We often think about love, you see, as something that's kind of primarily within us. Not that we don't think that love involves actions. We know it does. But when we think about love, the first thing we think about is what motivates or drives somebody to act. Not the actions themselves. So I can say I love my wife without thinking of anything in particular I have done or am doing. My love is is a kind of state of being for me. Now, that idea is not all bad or anything, and I think the Bible probably speaks about God's love like that as well. But that is not exactly what this passage means when it calls husbands to love their wives. The love it calls husbands to here is not just an inner attitude, but an active work focused in a particular direction. Because the model for the husband's love is not how Christ feels about the church, it's what Christ has actually done for it, how he has loved it. Now, I'm stressing this point, you may have picked that up, but I'm stressing it because I think it's one of the reasons we sometimes don't know how to apply this passage in our own context because we've forgotten that the love husbands are called to is purposeful. You see, if love is just a general attitude of fondness and care and doesn't have a kind of substance to it and a clear sense of direction, then it ends up being completely formless. And most importantly, it can easily lose any sense of connection with the idea of responsibility. Now, if I can be a little bit polemical for a moment, I think what this has done is to allow many Christian men to excuse themselves from taking responsibility in their marriages. 
and to fall into a way of operating where we basically try to keep our wives happy and not rock the boat. I've heard Christian husbands give advice to other young men along the lines of make sure you're quick to concede an argument and happy wife, happy life. We've traded a caveman picture for just a cave-in. Now, actually, I think those two can get on really easily, caveman and cave-in. Years ago, I was at a friend's wedding where the father of the groom, who is a lovely Chinese man who I have a great respect for actually but he finished his speech in broken English by saying and it being a kind of long speech and um, slightly unexpected and he finished it by saying Confucius says that in a marriage the husband must always have the last word and and then he paused and we all kind of went oh oh crap you know this is going to be a big cleanup but then he, he finished by saying and the last word must be yes dear It was very funny, actually, and it was very endearing. But it's also a bit tragic if it's taken seriously. Because what this can add up to is a situation in which there is literally nothing for a wife to submit to. Nothing substantial for her to respect. And this is because, as we noticed above, there are now far fewer social markers of a husband's headship in marriage. But when you also take away any sense that love is purposeful, you can be left with almost nothing. And it's very difficult for Christian wives to work out what on earth submitting to their husbands might mean. What we need, I think, is to remember that husbands are are not just called to care about their wives and to treat them well in a general sense, They are called to love them like Christ did. That is, not just a lot, although it is a lot, but purposefully. They're called to give themselves up in order to lead them in a particular direction. And this direction has particularly to do with holiness and faith. This is how Christ loved the church, and his example should shape husbands' love for their wives. Husbands are called to love their wives by doing what they can to ensure that they flourish as followers of Jesus. Now that, of course, is not all Paul means when he says love as he loves himself. It will involve lots of other things. But if Christ is our model, love will especially mean seeking to encourage and support growth in holiness and faith. Um, We don't have time to get into it, but... If you looked ahead to chapter 6, verse 4, I think we see the same kind of image happening in the family where fathers are called to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, if I may be so bold, I think that this is some, something that somebody can submit to gladly. A husband's self-giving efforts to promote a wife's and a family's well-being, especially their spiritual well-being, That's something that can be welcomed and respected. Not that this makes the idea of submission easy. I think it's always a deep and confronting challenge for somebody to deliberately and consciously allow themselves to be led by another. It's a challenge. More importantly, in the actual outworking of this in marriage, things are always messy. 
I know all too well that the, the reality of my attempts to love Lauren in a purposeful sense, to lead her in godliness, are very often pretty ordinary and frankly ridiculous when compared to Christ. Yet there is something beautiful in the idea of a wife freely welcoming her husband's imperfect attempts to lead her in faith and holiness. And moreover, we need to realise, without a wife's support, there is no way a husband will get anywhere at all with this. We so easily underestimate the immense challenges that face any attempt to take responsibility in this way, to take a relationship and a family forward on the basis of faith and conviction This is profoundly difficult in our context. And it can only happen when a husband and wife find a way to act together as one in a sustained and stable way. In a Christian marriage, in our context, a wife's submission is not just a duty, it is a gift to her husband and to her family to enable him and empower him to do something he cannot do otherwise to lead a family towards godliness. This is not easy for husband or for wife, but it is necessary if a marriage is to be what God intended it to be, not just a pleasant coexistence, but a cooperative effort of service and holiness. Okay. We've come a long way, and yet we have only really just begun Not literally, I'm not going to start again, but I'm all too aware that there are just a host of issues that I haven't touched on or dealt with properly. I haven't engaged much with the massive complexity and diversity of marriages as we experience them. I haven't talked about marriages where one spouse is not a Christian. I haven't really said much about the difficult issues in parenting today, not to mention the things we're all going to face as children of ageing parents. I really hope these will be things we can work on together in the future and in conversation. I'm also aware that my sermon has been pretty heavy and pretty preoccupied with the kind of theory. Uh, And some of you will probably not have loved that. But I've done this quite deliberately though. And the reason is that I've wanted to show, I've hoped, I have wanted to show how a careful and patient engagement with scripture, even with the text that can seem a bit embarrassing, how that can help us to see things differently and to see how God's word is better and more relevant than we give it credit for. My hope has been that this will enable us to renew our confidence in the Bible so that we do indeed, as the Old Testament reading called us to, trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And the reason I care about this, just to finish, is because there is something more at stake here than the specifics of what this text says about marriage. What is at stake is our ability to, (coughs) excuse me, our ability to submit to Christ. The church, as verse 24 says, submits to Christ. And it does this above all by trusting in his word. And submission to Christ is something beautiful and wonderful and worth fighting for. For he has loved us beyond our wildest hopes by giving himself up to death for us. 
and for the most beautiful purpose, in order that we might be his perfect, holy bride. As I mentioned at the beginning, we face a challenge today to the goodness of the Bible's teaching about marriage and family and things like what it is to be men and women. So let me urge you in closing, as you reflect on this passage and think about how you'll respond without pretending that things are simple or that everything's now been worked out, I certainly don't feel like that. But let me urge you to not let yourself slip away from submitting to Christ because there is nothing more wonderful than to have him as our head. And I hope that will be an encouragement for us to continue to take texts like this deeply seriously. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at this part of your word. Lord, we know that we all bring different things to uh, these to the reading of parts of your word like this and there's lots of things going on for us but we pray that above all whatever you show us of how this applies in our life above all we would want to submit to Christ and would always come at your word with that state of mind and heart and we pray this and ask it for Jesus sake Amen